Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. So, turn up your Walkman, loosen that scrunchie, and get ready to talk 80s with your host... Lindsay Parker. Hello, I'm Lindsay Parker from Yahoo Entertainment and Sirius XM Volume, and this is another episode of Totally 80s. We love hearing from you, so why not take a second to follow us at Totally 80s on Facebook and Instagram, or email us your comments and show ideas to podcast at totally80s.com. Just a reminder, if you want to see our faces, you can catch this episode on video as well on our Totally 80s YouTube channel, so please go check that out. And joining me today is my study partner, in all things 80s, ready for a crash course in college rock, Professor John Hughes, the Honorable Dr. John Hughes, I presume. I have a doctorate now. Oh, I love it. So uh, this is our part two. Did you do your homework since part one? Have you studied up? Are you ready to get into some advanced learning? I'm ready. I think we need, uh, I think uh, my thesis on Sire Records and its influence on music through the generations needs some work. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to quote as many sources as I can, but I keep getting stuck on figures on a beach. <laughs> that is definitely going to get you only a little bit of extra credit. What is up with you in figures on a beach? I this don't is know. Like <laughs> the most random footnote ever in <laughs> any. I love them. They were just so, uh, so poppy, but let's, 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 yeah. let's bring on our guests who I'm sure right. loves figures on a beach as well. Yes. Yeah, speaking <laughs> of theses, thesis, I, I've already got in a bad grade. Is it thesis, thesis, I? Uh, <laughs> anyway, speaking of people who have written a thesis or two, our special returning guest today is an award-winning journalist, editor, and critic whose profiles, interviews, and criticism have appeared in publications like Rolling Stone, NPR Music, The Guardian, Salon, Billboard, Stereo Gum, The AV Club, and more. Fans of the show will remember her not just from part one, but before she was on Talking About College Rock, she was on the show because she wrote the book on Duran Duran's Rio for the 33 and a third book series. This is must study material for any Durani. It came out last May. She's also uniquely qualified for this topic because she wrote the liner notes, which is a thesis of sorts, for the 2016 deluxe edition of REM's Out of Time and contributed a an A-plus essay to the 2020 Game Theory compilation Across the Barrier of Sound Postscript. And here she is back with us to talk about College Rock of the 80s. We are happy to welcome back to the show Professor Annie Zaleski. Happy to be here. I'm, I'm crammed and I'm ready to share my knowledge. But since we're talking about, we talked about television, how there were not many outlets for these bands before they got to the level of a U2 or REM to be on regular TV. Obviously, we've talked about 120 minutes and how important that was. But IRS is the cutting edge, founded, of course, by IRS, the label that started so many bands, including REM. That was where I first discovered. That's where I first saw the Red Hot Chili Peppers. I first saw Madonna there. I first saw Specimen on that show. 
I first saw, I mean, when I say Madonna, people probably think that doesn't sound like the other things, but you know, she did start off in that post-punk Danceteria world. I always like to say her first gig ever was at Danceteria opening for a certain ratio. That's true. Yep. That's my dream gig. I really wish I was there, but they were, I mean, it was hosted by the guy from the flesh tones and they just played all sorts of weird stuff. And then there was 120 minutes and some other specialty shows. How important were those shows on MTV? That was when MTV, I think, started to tip its toe into the idea that this was a world unto itself that they had to pay attention to. Of course, if you look at the early days of MTV, 1981 or whatever, I mean, it almost was all quote unquote college rock all the time. Like more than half of their playlist was weird stuff because mm -hmm. they would play anything. But when they started to get in the later eighties, a little more compartmentalized and they had headbangers ball and they had your MTV raps. And then they started having like, like a club MTV or whatever they realized this was a market that they needed to zero in on. So how let's talk about those shows. Do you uh, have memories of, of, of those shows sort of shaping your, this helping these bands break out? I mean, I think, I mean, I, when I watch, I would like literally tape 120 minutes because it was so exciting. And it was because they were playing stuff. I wasn't hearing on the radio. They were playing stuff. I maybe read about in a magazine, but it was like, this was like the only place I could hear and see these bands. And so, and I think that was even more true in the eighties. You know, you look at all their past playlists and there's stuff that like maybe got played once these like mm -hmm. really obscure bands, but it was like, it was, it was done in such a passionate way and they did it in such a smart way because they would also have maybe some historical videos. So they'd be like, here's how the modern era goes back to that. But, but you're right. I mean, people forget, you just couldn't hear that stuff unless you were near a college radio station or maybe happen to hear it, you would not hear this stuff otherwise, because, you know, that, those are the only places to see that stuff. People forget 120 minutes took some time to find it. Oh, yeah. it when it premiered, and I think it was 86, yep. it was the new music show. So Janet Jackson would get played on 120 minutes next really? to, oh yeah. Uh, look at the, there's a website. I wish I had it written down that has every playlist, of every episode of 120 minutes. And you look at some of these early episodes, you're like, why are they playing that? Well, I know that when it first started, they did not have a special, you know, it wasn't Matt Pinfield or even Dave Kendall or whatever. They had JJ Jackson and Alan Hunter sort of, not that they weren't qualified to host it, but they weren't trying to brand it as like its own thing. They just had, you know, the regular BJs do it. I think Dave Kendall, might have been the first one to come on because he had the British accent, of course. And, you know, the new wave haircut, he he looked the part. And then they obviously I think most people probably associated with the, the era with Matt Pinfield but when it sort of became more of its world. But I remember I don't remember it being a thing where any kind of Janet Jackson type of artist would have been on. That's interesting. So when did it become not just like the late night new music show, but sort of like the the college rock show, the weird music, the niche show. First of all, Dave Kendall's new wave haircut. I, I have to chuckle at that. Um, okay. <laughs> the classic moment of John Lydon trying to pull his wig off. That's <laughs> the, the time where it kind of gelled and became what we know uh, as 120 minutes in our minds is of all people, Kevin Seal. Kevin Seal. I liked Kevin Seal. He was the best because he knew nothing about the music and he didn't give a crap that he didn't know anything about it. So he would do these line reads like coming up a new video from loving rockets, you know, like I don't care, but that's when they started playing things like the Lucy show and, and love and rocket early. The Bolshoi. Bolshoi away. Uh, Jezebel. Yeah, really good stuff. 
And so, yeah, 120 minutes took some time to become 120 minutes. Once it did, it was, Annie's right. We taped it every Sunday night and watched it the rest of the week. And, oh, Robin Hitchcock, Balloon Man. I don't have that. Go buy the little CD3 of that at the Brown John, is this a fever dream? Or did the lead singer of King, the band that did Love and Pride. Paul King, yes. Did Paul King host 120 Minutes for a I'm second? I'm sure he did. I, he was a VJ on the show for a minute, and I feel yeah. like that would have been what he would have been hired to do. He was a VJ on uh, MTV UK. I know that for sure. Okay. I think they might have brought it. Maybe when Dave Kendall wasn't around, they're like, let's just put another guy with a British they, accent on. Yeah, no one will notice. They would have guest uh, VJs that were artists all the time. I think the Sundays did it once, uh, which was really, you know, these two soft-spoken people. <laughs> <laughs> Turn the volume up a little bit more. Exactly. So, yeah, it was, it, it, was, it was good. But going back to the cutting edge, have you ever tried to watch the cutting edge today? Should I not? Oh, it's a slog, man. It's a slog. Oh, I have such fond memories of it. I don't know. Maybe it's me, but it's just like. Mm. I mean, they had a lot of random stuff on that was yeah. kind of like. But my my strong memories of it were they played Madonna's Lucky Star, which again, of course, knowing. I mean, Madonna got his, you know, arguably even bigger than you two and was a pop artist that, you know, you think of her being on this show and you don't think it would fit. But she was still in that New York post-punk scene hanging out with, you know, Basquiat and, uh, you know, playing a danceateria and the lucky star video looked like it cost $5. So yeah. like it fit the aesthetic. I remember first hearing about, they took a trip to the bat cave to show the specimen, the scene that specimen were doing in the UK. I remember, I'm pretty sure I first heard about Terrence Trent Darby on IRS is the cutting edge. They, you know, he was like this rising star. They, I know I would never have heard the flesh tones. Otherwise, Peter Zaremba was the host. But why was it a slog? Just because like they just had random stuff. Yeah, just, you know, a lot of host segments that they were trying to fill up a half an hour with maybe about 10 minutes of actual performance. And, and okay. well, but these were the days where you'd sit around and wait for yeah. hours on MTV. You'd wait through two hours of 120 minutes to see that one video that you knew you would not be able to see otherwise. And actually what's funny is uh, one of my first jobs after my Capitol records internship is I worked at restless records and we made videos that cost literally two to $5,000. If we spent $10,000 on a music video, it was, it was a, a splurge for us because we knew the play was so limited. We have to remember the internet didn't exist. So like if you made a music video your only chances of it really getting seen besides, you know, those kind of like cable access specialty shows uh, that were regional was to get on MTV. And we knew that really the only chance we were going to get on MTV as an independent small record label was 120 minutes play. We made videos solely hoping we get on 120 minutes. We did, I think twice. Once was the Buck Pets and the other was Spain, the band Spain. Oh yeah. I'm pretty sure Spain got played twice. The Buck Pets, who actually, when we when Restless got them, had already were already an established college rock radio band and had been on a major label, and their second or third album was coming out on Restless. The Buck Pets were like probably our easiest sell to 120 minutes because of that background. They played them once. It was the last video of the night. Yeah, that oh. was. It's like, and now good night. It's 1:55 a.m. We like leave you now with the Buck Pets, and I'm almost positive they didn't even show the whole thing. Like the credits started rolling. Like, God damn it. it. It's kind of like the SNL 10 to one sketch, you know, Yeah, the super experimental weird thing that you're going to leave to the end. Uh, but that, that technique worked. I mean, there were videos that I saw maybe once 
120 minutes that I bought the album because, you know, there was no single, obviously. And I really was intrigued by what I heard. I mean, it's more 90s, but like Archers of Loaf. I think mm -hmm. I heard that once and I bought that record, Super Chunk. Uh, uh, and I got that's how my first exposure to Super Chunk. And I think the Lucy show, A Million Ways, I always use that as my example of college rock. I don't even remember the Lucy show. Were they oh, they're band? really good. Okay. Yeah. Like they have, they have a ton of records now too, but yeah, no, they're just like, how would you even describe them? Like just like really good, like dark pop. pop. We call them dark yeah. power pop. I mean, it was, okay. it was really accessible mainstream. Yeah. It had all the alternative college rock trappings yeah. about it. So therefore it was college rock. And, but yeah, listen to a million things. They, they would play that. Let's active. Every word means no. Mitch Easter was like a genre, unto, like a sub genre of college rock unto himself with all the stuff he produced and made. Let me take that back. It was probably uh, Let's Active uh, a million ways or no, I'm, I'm, I'm mixing, mixing my songs. By the time 120 minutes came around, there was it, that. Well, probably every dog has its day because that was like yeah. late, later 80s, I think. Yeah. That yeah. was like the booming production. That's what it was like super polished. Oh. Where he's sitting on the train tracks and it's a biggest expanse. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, I think it is in little ways. I think yeah. I that. there you go in little ways. Thank you. Uh, that was more 120 minutes era, but yeah, so many little bands like that that got one or two plays. Well, it's so interesting because as you know, even though this is the totally 80s podcast, probably more than any other edition of this podcast we've done, we've really bled between the 80s and the 90s, and because really college rock was the genre that blurred the lines. Like so many of the bands, like REM and the Pixies and, and Let's Active and the Replacements and all these bands definitely laid the groundwork for bands like Archers of Loaf, you know, and, you know, uh, the 90s era. But one thing I'm, you know, we're talking about bands from all different, I mean, arguably all different genres and subgenres and definitely different um, cities. So we're talking about, you know, Athens, which not just had, didn't obviously just have uh, REM, but, you know, had Pylon and Guadalcanal Diary and Love Tractor. And uh, before them, the B-52s could be considered maybe a college rock band. And then we're talking about like um, a lot of bands that kind of had a very Midwestern uh, sensibility, like The Replacements and Husker Du, who were from Minneapolis and The Violent Femmes, who were from Madison, Wisconsin. A lot of these Southern bands that were from like mm -hmm. North Carolina, like Let's Active or the DBs. And then there were a lot of like bands from, uh, you know, I'm talking about the American bands. Obviously, there's a whole bunch of British bands that we'll, we can talk about. But then there were a lot of bands that were like New Englander bands. Obviously, all, there was a lot going on in Boston besides the Pixies. There was like the Lemonheads and Dinosaur Jr. and Dump Truck and the Blake Babies. And of course, Throwing Muses are also a New England band. So it's like when I look at all this, with the exception of Sonic Youth, who, you know, are up there with the Pixies in terms of influence on 90s bands, there weren't like when we think about college rock, it's not really bands from L.A. or New York, is it? It's pretty much bands from like these other were they from college towns, basically, is like what it felt like very regional. And definitely it seemed like the hubs for these bands were not like L.A. had all of the, uh, you know, at the time in the 80s, it was basically the hub for metal bands at that time. Mm -hmm. New York had its own thing going on, but what do you, it, nowadays when you hear about artists coming up, you don't hear about like a scene. You don't hear about the Seattle scene or the Boston scene mm -hmm. or the Athens scene. It seems like regionality was very important to college rock back then. If you knew they were from a certain town, mm -hmm. you kind of knew what to expect. 
I would agree with that. And I think part of it is that those kind of regions had kind of a circuit to support those bands. I mean, college, you know, activities boards had a lot of money and they were able to kind of book some of those bands, but they also had smaller venues too that bands could play. And a lot of those cities, because they had so many younger people, had a really robust you know, venue scene. So like there's that element. And because it was regional, you could kind of build up your audience because you had kind of like-minded people. So you could kind of form these communities and these little things. And just because some of the, it's not like, like growing up in Cleveland, Cleveland had like four really good radio, like college radio stations going 24 seven. So depending on where you were, like they could all band together. And they, I remember they would co-promote shows. And so mm. kind of made stuff happen. And because there was sort of the critical mass in these little regions, you could help bands become more successful. And, you know, I think New York and LA, just because they were both so big and they kind of had their own thing going on, they didn't kind of need that. But for bands who were like, oh, I'm a little smaller, might need a little boost, like it made total sense. I think and it was a moment in time that's just done, got done, gone over. You had a band like the Ocean Blue that could start as a high school band in 1986 in Hershey, Pennsylvania. I always thought they were British for so and long. Everyone too. Did. And they end up getting signed by Sire Records yeah. and, and being put on the road with Mighty Lemon Drops and in PIL and things like that. So it's 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 a, you know it's a wistful time to look back at things that we've lost and let's not forget about cleveland because that's where annie's from because i mean nine's nails but you know obviously there were these bands like uh death of samantha and cobra verde and you know like cleveland had its own thing going on but like at that time like although there was there was a lot of actually great stuff coming going out in la obviously there were bands like i shouldn't say that there were not college rock bands coming out from la because i'm la and concurrent with all the poison and guns and roses and motley crew type bands we had jane's addiction and we had fishbone they would get snapped up by majors, though, the minute they, they yeah, yeah. So that, yeah, that's James Addiction got snapped up right away. Fishbone did not. Red Hot Chili Peppers, it took actually, I think Red Hot Chili Peppers were always on majors. They didn't necessarily have major label success until a few albums in, but they were always on majors. But you're right, they were definitely kind of snatched into the mainstream Borg a little faster. But yeah, the regionality of it was pretty interesting. Another thing that I noticed when I'm sort of looking at all the lists of bands and sort of trying to you know again they were from all different cities different countries and and kind of had different sounds they didn't have one um sound but a through line is like i'd love to talk about the lyrics because it was college rock yeah did there did there need to be a certain literateness to it or or even like a sort of smart assery to it because when i look at like you know certainly the replacements with like songs like waitress in the sky they might be giants who we haven't even mentioned they often unfairly get dismissed as kind of like a novelty band they had really really smart lyrics you mentioned robin hitchcock i mean xtc jonathan richmond i mean camper van beethoven take the skinheads bowling anything the violent femmes did mojo nixon uh dead milkman you know uh even the smithereens like there was a certain level of the lyrics uh certainly michael stipe he, his lyrics weren't necessarily funny but they were clever. Like there was a certain, uh, and of course, maybe the ultimate Morrissey and the Smiths. Yeah. Like that, there was there a certain expectation to be in the genre of college rock that you had to have like intelligent or witty or clever lyrics. I would argue Dead Milkmen probably don't belong. <laughs> I think their lyrics were clever and fun. You know, I'll give you I mean, fun. they were sophomoric, and so was yeah. Mojo Nixon, who had a song called like De Debbie Gibson's Pregnant with My Two-Headed Love Child. But, you know, they might be giants. A lot of people thought their lyrics were silly, too. But I do think there was a certain, like, 
irreverence and like subversive cleverness to it, even if it was a little bit like, you know, juvenile. I agree, but I also think it's the other end of things where you're being willfully obtuse and, and bizarre <laughs> with your lyrics in order to fit an image. Uh, you know, I, I'm trying to think of an example off the top of my head, and I'm blanking, of course, but, you know, okay, REM, our, our buddies REM, when the world is a monster, Philo math will, why, what's happening? I mean, the nice thing is I think Michael Stipe would say, I have no idea what I was thinking when I wrote about that. Like, so I think he would be like, I, I, I got nothing. But, <laughs> it, it is true though, that there, I think, I think the post REM bands, they, when the bands who tried to imitate REM is when things got really ridiculous because then some of them were just like, you know, going overboard on the mumble, like obscure poetry that you're like, you, this is word salad. You have no idea what's going on. Who are uh, some of the imitators? Do you, oh, can you name some? I mean, you know, there's some actually there's some really like I would say like Miracle Legion is actually a really good band and they their lyrics and Mark Mulcahy is a really excellent songwriter. So I think they really came after R.E.M. Well, actually, I think they came up around a little bit after R.E.M. And so he wasn't like doing goofy lyrics or anything. But I think I think it's the bands we don't remember that like who came and went because like the like Guadalcanal Diaries from Athens and they're a great band and they kind of sound like R.E.M. but they have a little bit more of a Southern bent, you know? So I think the bands that took what R.E.M. did and did something different succeeded more. I know that there were a million R.E.M. clones and I don't remember any of them. And that's probably why, because they were just like lukewarm, you know, they, they tried to capture what they did and just failed. I mean, there was the Flaming Lips, which, I mean, they're obviously still around and still great. But I remember when when I was first playing them, you know, and like, obviously, She Don't Use Jelly came out. Like, I think a lot of people, I mean, they were certainly not a new band by the time that record came out. They'd actually, much much like R.E.M., had been around for some time and had been on a smaller label. But like, I remember a lot of people thought that that was a novelty song and that it was a silly song. And, you know, and, and Wayne Coyne's lyrics certainly were and are a little silly but yeah. you know, and totally word salady that's like it's not even a salad it's like a main it's like a buffet of, <laughs> of sal of words but you know it, they started off as a college rock band they played ucla before they were real big and so and i think what are some of the college rock bands of the 80s the flaming lips did start in the 80s that are still around now that are kind of like besides i mean the ones that we've mentioned already are obvious u2 rem i will put the flaming lips in there the replacements, the Pixies, the Pixies. I think when I realized how big the Pixies were was when they reunited at yes. Coachella in 2004, that actually set the groundwork for at Coachella for a while. Like every Coachella lineup had to have a reunited or heritage comeback artist. And mm -hmm. lots of artists did it from the verve to rage against the machine and the outcast, but it started in 2004, the Pixies. And, it's hard to imagine now because we all see what like Coachella has become. It was the biggest thing in the world. I mean, the mm -hmm. entire, it, you would have thought that the Beatles had reunited the way people were acting when the Pixies played. And that's when I realized how important they still were, despite the fact that, you know, they never did become as commercially successful as some of these other bands we're talking about. But they, what are like, are there any other bands that we haven't mentioned that are like just the key college rock bands of the 80s mm -hmm. whose influence is still felt today, maybe are still playing today, still just really looked at historically. People don't give them enough credit. Echo and the Bunnymen. All right. I almost wore my Echo and the Bunnymen t-shirt today, but it was in the wash because I wear it that often because I'm still a fan. More so on the their impact on British bands 
yes. uh, than America, but they were really something else. Uh, you listen to an album like Ocean Rain on a great stereo system, and you're just you're taken away. It's it's deep, it's mysterious, it's goofy. Uh, uh, Thorn of Crowns is the weirdest song uh the i see he's trying to do a jim morrison thing and break down their you know their doors influences but echo and the Bunnymen just really resonates still i think if you ask any british band you know yes ian mcculloch yeah. when you say that they don't get enough credit he gives himself enough credit there's not an interview ian mcculloch won't do where he won't say that the killing moon is the greatest song of all time. And he's not wrong. I, That's the thing. I, I understand his frustration. I, you know, I would say it too, if I was Ian McCullough. <laughs> what about Jesus, the Jesus and Mary Jane? I don't think they get, I mean, when I think about, I, I hear their fuzzy guitar sound yeah. in so, you know, in so much of, of current bands or certainly nineties bands. The Ravenettes. I'm sorry. What? Yeah. Yeah. That's a perfect example. Well, I mean, girl. yeah. That's a perfect example. I mean, I hear there were so many bands in the 90s and early 2000s that I thought sounded like Jesus and Mary Jane. The first time I ever saw Nine Inch Nails play was opening for the Jesus and Mary Jane. And then like later in more recent years, they were opening for for Nine Inch Nails like their favorite was returned. But I mean, just everything, even like beyond what they sounded like, like their styling, their image their I mean, I just think they're so archetypal and I don't. I mean, certainly, you know, the three of us and probably a lot of people listening to this would not argue with that. But I don't think they're a band that gets name checked very often. They're not a band that's ever going to get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but their influence is everywhere. There were like all these random bands in the 90s, like Pink Noise Test and stuff where I'm like, wow, you sound exactly like the Jesus and Mary Chain. Like, it's obvious you're ripping them off. So I think, is there any other bands that sort of uh, you think are kind of like A-list college bands, bands that graduated? to the top of their class. I mean, it's funny because 10,000 Maniacs are still together and obviously mm. Natalie is not in the band anymore, but I think for a while there, they and they're, but they still tour, but they were so influential. I think Natalie Merchant is the kind of, uh, what would you even call her? Like kind of the mystic poet, just sort of like the environmentally conscious. Kind of the predator to the whole Lil Affair thing of the exactly. 90s. Exactly. And I just feel like she, I mean, they got pretty big in the 90s and I feel like they started off they were kind of the twee thing. And I think you saw that become really big in the late 80s, especially like their sound. And like, I don't think they get talked about very much. Just Not anymore. anymore. No, but I think they were also really, really big. I mean, didn't she play like Clinton's inauguration? Oh yeah, with R.E.M. Yeah. They did like the, she did To Serve With Love. I mean, you know, wow. she has this amazing red velvet dress, which I still remember and covet because it's like beautiful, like, like uber 90s. And so <laughs> pretty good. But yeah, I mean, that's one of them. She's getting a, a little more acclaim now, but Sinead O'Connor was very oh, wow. rock. Uh, yeah, because uh, Nothing Compares to You was obviously like 1990, but that whole line, the Cobra album, that was a 120 minutes staple for sure. Man Mandika, I want your hands on me. I mean, uh, and then she was just, you know, cast out by society for so long, and, and which wrongly so. <laughs> Sinead was right. Sorry, folks. Yeah. Yeah. So, I kind of want like her and Chris Crocker, the um, guy who said leave Britney alone to do some kind of like speaking tour because they were both right. And they both yeah. got really cast out for, I mean, completely different eras and different things they were speaking out. But there are two people that when they kind of went out on a limb and protested something, just completely got ostracized for. And, you know, history showed they were right. 
I want them to do a college speaking engagement tour, the two of them. Sinead O'Connor, Chris Crocker, 2022. I know it's random, but that's how my brain works. Anyone else that, uh, oh, you know, and also labels as well, because we talked a lot about 4AD and we yeah. talked about wax tracks. There were certain labels that I think if we were called radio stations, uh, if we got them sent to us, if the music director got them, we're like, ah, okay, we got to put this in rotation. So what like labels or other artists were important to the era? I mean, I think 4AD and I think 4AD actually has a pretty long tail just in terms of like you look at so many modern bands now and they have the kind of the aesthetics and also kind of the sound. And I mean, just and because they had the whole package, like everything was beautiful. Like you saw a 4AD record, you wanted to listen to it. It didn't matter like what the band was. You're like, this is very intriguing because I think Shoegaze especially like and I don't think there was necessarily a label, but Shoegaze is so big now. And I think so much of that started in late 80s college rock for sure. Mm-hmm. I would also say SST. I yeah. would say uh, Sub Pop, which did start in the 80s and had, you know, the Wipers and Scratch Acid and Green River and all these bands that, of course, laid the groundwork for the grunge bands to follow. I'd say Enigma, which was part of Restless. Yeah. And, you know, which had the Dead Milkman and bands like that. I'm shaking my head. I'm so disappointed <laughs> in both of you. I don't, well, I'll let you take this one. Fire records. Fire. That's a given. We, we, that's okay. just <laughs> Do you want to hear a cute story that's sort of related to, um, so I was interviewing uh, Laura Jane Grace the other day, Laura Jane Grace from Against Me. And if you read uh, Laura Jane Grace's autobiography, which is called Tranny, I know that's not a politically correct term, but that is the term, that is the title of her book. She chose to call it that. But obviously it's about the fact that she's trans and she's talking about that mm -hmm. journey. And it opens with her saying the first time she kind of had like an awakening about gender expression, like basically saw something where she related to a pop star and thought, actually, I think that's who I am. It was seen in early Madonna video on uh, MTV. Mm -hmm. So Laura Jane Grace is a huge Madonna fan. So when I was interviewing her, we of course started talking about Madonna. And she said that when against me going back to the whole idea of like signing to a record label is selling out. She, when they signed to Sire, when Against Me had a chance to mm -hmm. sign to Sire, and there were like other people who kind of like thought that was them selling out. Uh, Laura told her bandmates and fans that the reason that she wanted to sign to Sire was because it was the home originally of the Ramones. And she's like, that was kind of true. But she goes, secretly, I really wanted to sign to Sire because it was the label that had signed Madonna. And I was like, yes. I'm I'm waiting for someone to give an interview where they say, I really wanted to sign Desire because they signed figures on a beach. Yeah, I don't know if you'll get that. Who, well, who were some of the other people besides the, the wide swath between, um, you know, Danceteria artist Madonna and uh, the Ramones and figures on a beach? Who were some of the other key college rock artists of that label that because you are so disappointed in us that we didn't bring it up? Erasure, early everything like the girl. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. Right. Gosh, gallon drunk. Martin Gore, Depeche Mode, you know, before they broke through. You consider uh, Depeche Mode a college rock band? The beginning, sure. Okay. Uh, before they got uh, John Wesley Harding. He, it doesn't get any collegier than that. Wow. <laughs> facts, facts. Yeah. Uh, Ofra Haza. Uh, I'm just going through this list. At, uh, going to the night. Uh, Tommy, well, not Tommy Page. Uh, I was confusing him with Tommy Keen. Uh, <laughs> Tommy Keen counts. Yeah, uh, Primal Scream. Okay, well there you go. Enough said. Enough said. Zillow's. Okay, and that was a major. That was a major label, and it's interesting because you know, like I said, in the 
college rate, you know, there were some college radio stations that if it was on a major label, they already were dismissing you. They were already turning up your nose, but like Sire got a pass. They would argue that they were a label that was distributed by a major. That, right. that was their, that was their work around. Yeah, exactly. Well, as we, you know, sort of wrap up and, you know, talk about how things have changed and stuff, when one of the things that in the industry side of things about like whether certain labels had cachet or whatever was like, it's kind of almost quaint to say now, and I'm sorry that I'm ignorant to it now that I don't know if this is still the case, but like CMJ was really important then. Oh, Getting yeah. on like CMJ was College Music Journal. It was basically the billboard uh, charts of college radio and it was its own world. And when I worked at a label like Restless, we knew we never had any chance of, you know, having a billboard hit. But to get and I know this charts minutia is one of your specialties, John, like to get on the top of the CMJ charts was a very big deal then. I don't even know if it is like the CMJ, CMJ does it still exist? Like it seems like a world away to me. Sort of like, I think someone bought the IP, but I don't really know. What to do it. <laughs> but what like CMJ was so important. What like, no. I don't even know. How did you qualify even to chart? Like, was it based on just sheer airplay on all these small radio stations? It was a very big deal for an indie label to be able to say mm -hmm. we have the number one song at college radio. Wasn't it just that you basically like they required they they depended on you to report things and then how it went, <laughs> which I'm sure went great when you have college. Yeah, exactly. When you had college, yeah, just college. send me those send me those REM tickets that no yeah. one wants to. And we're not going to even try to give them away on the air. Just send me those tickets. This is before radio base, <laughs> you know, where you can actually uh, confirm that the track was played. This was this was. Hey, college rep, uh, program director at the radio station there. Can you fill out your playlist form for me and send it back to me? And by the way, did I give you these front row seats to see <laughs> figures on a beach at the Agora? Beach it. Well, that wouldn't have swayed me, but you know, yeah. teaching the kids young, teaching the kids young about corruption in the music business, start them young, start them young. Saying, I'm not saying it happened. I'm would would figures on a beach tickets really been enough for you to fudge the numbers? I would I, have held out for the, you know, the REM tickets. Yeah, I, I would have asked for a promo in addition. <laughs> Meet and greet. Exactly. A couple pictures on a Polaroid, please. Yeah. I, I do recall that Trent Reznor came to KLA once. I'm pretty sure no one probably had told anyone at TVT records that you could not actually hear it anywhere except on my mother's oh, cable splitter, but he did come and he like, recorded some kind of like, hi, I'm Trent Reznor and you're listening to KLA. And we were so excited about it. Yeah. I don't know how that happened. Thank you. Whatever person at TVT made that happen. I'm pretty sure that Pretty Hate Machine was the number one album that week on KLA, which meant nothing. But as we, you know, sort of wrap up, this obviously is a by, we're talking about so many things that are a bygone era. Like college radio still exists, but like this, what is like this ecosystem now in current music? Cause I don't think college radio moves the needle we don't have cmj charts we don't have the regional scenes that you know kind of we don't you know it's not important to really be on mtv anymore 120 minutes doesn't exist is it all just what's like the equivalent of it now in current uh, my niece madison is the program director of baldwin wallace's college radio station the b the buzz the buzz sorry i got it wrong and sting the sting thank you i knew it had something to do with a b or a hornet yeah. or something. thank you and they're still reporting. They're still doing uh -huh. giveaways. They're still doing interviews. So they're still on, you know, record company labels uh, 
radar. We have Warner Music has a college radio. That's what I was about to ask. Like, does that even exist now? And I guess the answer is yes. They're influencers now. That's it. Influencers. Mm -hmm. All right. All right. Well, I'm glad to see that in some way it still exists, that the kids are still being educated. Because I do think it's important that not, you know, especially nowadays where there's so much consolidation and all of the, I mean, it was, this is not a new problem, but like, Back in the day, even back in the 80s, people were complaining that all the major radio stations and major TV stations were under one umbrella. And it was so important to have these alternative rock uh, college stations. So I'm glad that there's still some semblance of that. Annie, so. Annie we got to stick it to mall right communication. We do. Oh, my God. I'm like having flashbacks here. That was that was like on every like break. It was like mall right communications. Oh. Sorry, a regional joke. I do not even know what we're talking about because corporate, I am corporate. from Los Angeles. I was going to say Cleveland corporate. We talk about corporate radio. Yep. All well, right. I don't know. Lindsay, just to put a button on how things are changing, uh, podcasts. You know, there you go. That's uh, horn, but a, 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 the former headquarters of a radio station in Cleveland was just purchased by Evergreen, which is a podcast company, and they're moving into the radio station yeah. headquarters, right, Amy? Yeah, they are. And it's like, and they do, I mean, and they do some music related stuff, but it's a lot broader. And I think that's really kind of a parallel to what's going on in music is that, you know, college radio doesn't necessarily have like the like center of the universe type thing anymore, but the people who really enjoy it, like it, they will seek it out and they will, and they will have it and it'll have an influence. You know, you mentioned WBWC, which is actually plays new music and not every station does, but like, I'll still honestly listen to that in the car be like, Oh, that's kind of cool. That's, you know, I'll look it up later. And so maybe cause I'm older and I grew up doing that, but I think there really is something that it is still important for sure. That's good. Well, I learned something today, which is appropriate because today was all about college rock. So <laughs> thanks for coming to our TED Talk. I hope you learned something. Special thanks today to our guest, Professor Annie Zaleski. Her 33 and a third book on Duran Duran's Rio is available now on Amazon. And even those physical bookstores, something for you to study up. I have said, Annie, that if there is a Duran Duran college uh, course, which there should be, this yeah. will be the textbook for that. I am ready. I'm ready to write the curriculum. Anyone can reach out to me. I'm waiting, standing by. Awesome. Thanks. I will enroll for that class and I will even apply for extra credit. And I think I'll get an A. But in the meantime, thank you, Professor Annie Zaleski. I'm Professor Lindsay Parker. I've been joined today by Professor John Hughes. And we want to thank you for listening to our lesson on College Rock. Remember to give us a rate and review on your favorite podcast platform. And we'll catch you next time. This was Totally 80s the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Totally80s, and please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Until our next episode, catch you on the flip side. Bye.